Have you ever been on a walk in the woods and felt like you weren't alone? Like someone or something was watching you? The areas in South Florida around Lake Okeechobee have long passed down stories of strange creatures that roam the woods and swamplands. In some ways, these kinds of sightings aren't surprising. There's a lot of people who keep exotic pets in Florida. Monitor lizards that can grow up to six feet long, giant pythons, spider monkeys, all kept as pets, and like other pets, all have been dumped in the wild by bored owners who no longer want to deal with the responsibility of owning them. Even so, there are stories of even stranger creatures in Florida. Creatures that defy any known explanation. One of the most well-known, the skunk ape. The Everglades skunk ape has many nicknames. Swamp Cabbage Man, Swamp Squatch, Florida Bigfoot. Eyewitnesses claim the creature measures six to eight feet in height and weighs an estimated 500 pounds. It has a shaggy coat of fur, ranging from rust color to dark brown and walks upright. Observers say it moves rapidly when frightened or pursued. As its name implies, the skunk ape is best known for its rank odor. Eyewitnesses describe the stench as a cross between a skunk and old roadkill. In the 1970s, more than a dozen sightings of the skunk ape were reported in suburban Palm Beach County alone. There really was a rash of skunk ape sightings throughout the 1970s in Florida, more than any other decade. Why is a mystery. One theory is, like the wave of reported UFO encounters in the 60s, one skunk ape sighting tends to fuel others. Movies featuring creatures similar to the skunk ape were popular in the 70s as well. In fact, one of the first movies played in the Brahmin Theater in Okeechobee was The Legend of Boggy Creek, a horror movie featuring a seven-foot-tall creature completely covered in reddish-brown hair, leaving three toe tracks and having a foul odor. Along with deer, duck, crane, and beaver, lurks a creature that walks upright. Whether it is a man, a monster, or a myth, no one really knows. What we do know, whatever it is, emits one of the most terrifying sounds ever recorded. The Legend of Boggy Creek, rated G. 
talk to enough people in Okeechobee, and you'll find someone who has a story about seeing something strange late at night. Something they can't explain. I found two friends, Zach and Ryan, who saw something while walking through Okeechobee late one night in 2006. Or, should I say, something saw them. Uh, my name is Zach Perdue. My name is Ryan. I live in Basswood. My best friend Ryan lives with me. And uh, we decided we we're going to go to the movies with some friends after the movie, or after we leave the movie theater. Me and Ryan are like, let's go to Domino's or let's go to Walmart. When we left Walmart, we realized it was already kind of late and we didn't bother calling a ride or anything. So we decided to walk to Zach's house in Basswood, which is where I had lived at the time. From the movie theater to Basswood is about a two hour walk, give or take. It comes time to where like it's starting to get dark and we're like, we're not going to be home till late. Like at this point, like no one's picking us up or anything like that. We just decide to walk home. So it's already dark when we're on our way home. I remember all the streetlights are already on by the movie theater, and we keep on walking along 441. As we're walking down 441, right past the Brahmin drive through right across from the Okeechobee High School. I think Ryan saw it first. I looked up kind of at the streetlight and saw this massive, almost bat-like creature flying over the streetlight. Its wingspan must have been at least five and a half, six foot. It had a huge wingspan. It was all like a pale color. It had this, what seemed to be leathery skin from the distance I could tell. It was just very shocking. I was like, oh, what, what is that? I've never seen anything like that before. I don't really know what it was. It, it felt like I want to say a bat, or something of the sort, but that's not, there's no way it was a bat that big. Even the biggest bats in the world would just barely come compared to size. And we were more baffled on what we just saw, being pretty good fans of paranormal things. We were more excited about what we had just seen than worried or traumatized or anything like that. We keep on walking, we start turning into Whispering Pines from 441 into Basswood. If you're familiar with this road that cuts through from 441 to 98 that takes you through Basswood, there's a dump there. And I remember we're getting close to the dump. We were walking on the side of the road with this junkyard when Zach stopped and kind of put his hand out in front of me. He said something along the lines of, what is that? When I looked up, when my eyesight kind of adjusted to the darkness that was in the ditch, I saw these glowing eyes. Because it was big, it was probably bigger than Ryan, and Ryan's easily six something. And I remember this thing making me feel like Ryan looked small. We stare at this thing for what felt like forever to me. Yo, what is this thing? Oh my god, dude, is it a cat? It's hunched over. Like, we could tell it was hunched over. I felt really uneasy. And I could see kind of the outline shape from the light that was behind it. Its head was, it was too round, almost human shaped to be some sort of animal. Me having the logical brain I did, 
was like, if this thing's a predator, we can't run from it or else it'll chase us. So we kept eye contact with it as we kind of skirted along and went to the opposite side of the road. And then Zack started running. I just start freaking out. <laughs> and I don't even know if Ryan's behind me at this point, but I hear him say, no, don't run, because if it's something like a predator, it's going to go after you if you run. But I remember thinking, oh, that, I don't care. I need to get the fuck out of here right now. In kind of like a panic state, I noticed this thing wasn't starting to chase him, so I started running too. We ran for quite a while. <laughs> I, I felt like I was dying at, when we finally stopped at this vacant house. We noticed that this thing wasn't chasing us at all, so you know, still kind of on edge. We walked home, basically watching our backs, and made it back to his house. Growing up, and seeing all these different ghost adventuring and cryptid shows on TV, you, you never expect to have a first-hand encounter when it comes to these things. Through the years, I never once doubted what I saw that night. And to this day, I still don't exactly know what either of the creatures were. And that's the thing, is that if it was a big cat, we would have heard it. Like, it, was, it wasn't like a deep thicket of brush in the, in the ditch. It was just big enough to cover whatever this thing was. Just felt like two, like someone was just wide-eyed looking at us with glowing eyes. We stayed up all night and talked about what what was that thing. And I remember maybe a week earlier, there had been some type of tabloid in the newspaper about skunk ape, and uh, how everyone thought skunk ape was living in Okeechobee. I remember when we got home, me and Ryan just started rolling that over in our head. It was like, was that skunk ape? Like, was skunk... Was it like a juvenile skunk ape? Maybe that's why it was kind of like our size, and it was just hunched down, scared. And so we just... Uh, we kind of chalked it up to that for, for a while. But... Then we remembered the flesh flyer. We started bringing that up, and we are like, wait, what if it was the same thing? Like, what if that was some type of polymorphing creature that we just stumbled upon randomly within the world. I don't think it was either of those things. I think they might have been two separate things. And it, the flesh flyer doesn't creep me out as bad as the eyes do. Because now that I reflect on it, the more I think we really did discover some type of phenomenon that we weren't supposed to. Something just happened to be in Okeechobee that night, passing through. And we were the only ones up and walking around at 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I still to this day, um, I don't think that was a person and I don't think that was a big cat. I don't think it was an alien or anything like that either, though. I think it was something from this world. I think these things have a tenacity to appear to the people that aren't going to be believed. <laughs> um... Not only that, but people don't believe. Why would you? Why would you believe something so strange? And not try to chalk it up to logic. Oh, you guys saw, saw a barn owl. That's what that was. That was just a barn owl. Those happened to be in Okeechobee. 
or maybe oh yeah that was definitely like a juvenile cougar you guys saw that's why it didn't attack you it was scared of you no i don't think that's it i just think that truth is stranger than fiction sometimes When you talk to people about ghosts or haunted buildings near Okeechobee, one place that's always brought up is the Desert Inn. The Desert Inn is located in Yeehaw Junction. For those not from the area, Yeehaw Junction isn't really a town, more of a glorified truck stop. It sits just off an exit of the Florida Turnpike and is a little more than a few gas stations and an old motel and restaurant called the Desert Inn. The inn was founded as a trading post in the 1880s, serving as a supply stop and saloon for cattle drivers and lumbermen traveling through the rural heartland of Florida. The upstairs of the building served as a brothel where women of the night would entertain travelers for the right price. After the bordello closed, the inn continued providing lodging for wary wanderers. Over the years, there were a number of deaths connected to the building, including bar fights that turned into shootouts, and automobile accident victims who were taken to the inn for shelter and who died before medical help arrived. According to the book, Florida's Ghostly Legends, in the early 1990s, a traveler who was staying in one of the upstairs rooms committed suicide by hanging himself from an overhead pipe. The owner of the inn at the time, who was interviewed for the book, was the person who found the body. She reported that some of the staff members refused to go upstairs alone because people have strange feelings and experiences there. There were incidents of things moving by themselves, including furniture, doors opening and closing, and the sound of someone pacing back and forth upstairs. And all those things happened while the door to the upstairs was padlocked. In 2019, the Desert Inn story took another turn. A part of Florida history severely damaged this when a tractor trailer plowed through the historic Desert Inn and restaurant in Yeehaw Junction early this morning. In the dead of night, at 3 o'clock in the morning on December 22nd, a semi-trailer plowed into the historic building, wrecking the structure. The truck driver, who was unharmed, told reporters after the crash, When I got to that corner, I couldn't see the ground. I couldn't see the lines or anything. It was too dark. So, what happens to ghosts when the building they're in is destroyed? Are they set free? Can they finally, at last, pass on from this world? Or are they just stuck wandering the roadside where the building was? The desert in itself is kind of stuck between two phases of its life. It's not open, and it's not fully destroyed. Following the semi-truck accident, 
the inn has now set stagnant for two years, not being rebuilt, but also not being demolished. The abandoned wreckage of the building sits as a morbid reminder of what once was, a ghost of its former self, unable to finally be free of this world. On the east coast of Florida, about 30 miles from Okeechobee, there's a story of a haunting that occurs not in a building, but outside, next to a tree. In Port St. Lucie, there are stories of something called the Devil's Tree. No one knows the exact location of the Devil Tree, but the story goes that people get an eerie feeling in its presence and that equipment and machinery is said to malfunction when close to the tree. The spirit of two girls reportedly haunt the tree, and at night, strange things can be heard. So, how did this story of a devil tree begin? It turns out, there was a kernel of truth to that story. And the real story of what happened at the Devil Tree was more horrifying than any ghost story could be. In July of 1972, two teenage girls were out hitchhiking for a ride to the beach when a Martin County Sheriff's deputy named Gerard John Schaefer approached them. He told the girls it was dangerous to hitchhike because there were a lot of creeps around. Instead, he offered to meet them the next day and give them a ride to the beach. The next day, Deputy Schaefer met up with the girls again, as he said he would. But this time, he wasn't in uniform and no longer driving his patrol car. Schaefer tells the girls it's because he's going undercover that day but that he will still give them a ride. Instead of going to the beach, Schaefer drives the girls to a remote area and puts them in handcuffs, forcing them into the woods. There, the girls come across a tree with two nooses hanging from it. Schaefer forces the girls to balance themselves on the roots of the tree as he tightens the noose around their necks. As the girls stand tied with their necks in a noose, Schaefer proceeds to molest them. After a while, Schaefer tells the girls he's leaving and that when he returns, one of them would die. Horrifying. But here's the thing. After Schaefer left, those two girls escaped their nooses and ran. When Schaefer returned to the tree and found the girls gone, he realized he was in trouble. He calls his sheriff, Robert Crowder, and tells him he was trying to teach a few girls a lesson and went too far. Sheriff Crowder finds the two girls alive and scared out of their minds. When he hears their story, he realizes this was no simple lesson gone wrong like his deputy had claimed. 
Schaefer is fired by the sheriff and arrested and charged for what he did to the young girls. He pleads guilty, and this is amazing, is only sentenced to six months for the crime. And not only that, but Schaefer was granted a bail extension by the judge, allowing him to take care of the business of helping his wife relocate to Fort Lauderdale before he began his sentence. The extension by the judge gives Schaefer six months of freedom before he's due to report to prison. In April of 1973, four months after Schaefer reported to prison, two men were out collecting rubbish in the undergrowth of a park in St. Lucie County when they discovered something terrible. They find decomposed bodies of two girls buried in shallow graves. Police arrive and piece together what happened. The two girls' arms were bound their bones showed evidence of knife cuts, and on a nearby tree, the impression of two heavy ropes. Dental records from the jawbones matched 16 and 17 year old girls who had gone missing. This new pair of young girls had gone missing only two months before Schaefer reported to prison directly in the middle of the bail extension granted by the judge. Police find one of the girl's bags in Schaefer's house. Later that year, he's tried for the two murders. Schaefer is found guilty, and this time receives two life sentences. Afterwards, investigators theorize that because of the disturbing pattern in each of Schaefer's crimes, taking girls in pairs, tying them in nooses, that he may have killed others. They began looking into other cases of missing women in South Florida around the same time frame. In Schaefer's mother's house, they find a box of his belongings. Among them, a trinket box filled with women's jewelry. Jewelry that doesn't belong to any other woman in his family. Overall, they were able to connect at least 32 missing girls to Schaefer, if not more. In prison, Schaefer bragged about the number of girls he killed, estimating between 80 and 110. In a documentary by French filmmakers, Schaefer spoke about meeting Ted Bundy and how Bundy was obsessed with the number of girls Schaefer killed. He's like bragging to me. It wasn't exactly a brag, it was like a tribute. How many did you get, really, Jerry? They said 34. Did they get all of them? Or did he have private graveyards? I said, Dad, I'm the best. He had 36. He wanted to be the best. And he was obsessed because they said I had 34. And he was afraid that I had ones that he didn't know about. So, and he was always trying to get me to say, no, that's all I got, 34, you know? But I never would say that. I, I discerned that he was concerned about the number. And it was my own way of needling him back by saying, I'm the best, Ted. You're gonna fry and I'm gonna be here. 
and I'll be the best. Just like they said, the number one, Mr. Stone had it all right. The best there ever was. And you're nothing. In 1995, Schaefer was attacked and killed by his cellmate. He was stabbed 18 times in each eye. The book Silent Scream by Yvonne Mason goes into detail about all the cases involving Schaefer. And I recommend checking it out if you want to look further into it. Happy Halloween. Stay safe out there. Be smart. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing or leaving a review. My name is Richard Marion, and this is True Okie.